0: You know, one of the cool things about the Bible, I, at least I, I know for me, um, without it, I, I'm, I'm, I am going to constantly mess up. <laughs> and so what, what this provides for me is good, solid truth that I, I can know, I can say, well, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to this is, this is trust. This is, you know, this is how I'm going to make decisions. The word of God is profitable. It's, it's meaningful to us. And so you know, as we go through this, it doesn't matter whether we're in 1 Samuel or Revelation or somewhere else. It's all breathed by God and it's beneficial for us. And as we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, we've been learning lessons from the heart. Various different lessons of as God has given us a glimpse into individuals' hearts and, and, and thereby you know, teaching us about our own hearts, the areas that our hearts need to be Changed, yielded to the Lord, and then, of course, you know, areas where our hearts are right where they need to be. Well, David, his heart is trusting in the Lord right now. And it's interesting because we've been watching over the last two chapters that as David has trusted the Lord, he's doing so even when the Lord directs him to go toward danger. And so the last we saw him, he was narrowly escaping, uh, being surrounded by King Saul. And the reason was is because right as the time Saul's about to close the net, the Philistines invade Israel. And yet, even though this provides some respite for David, it is only a respite because Saul will return to hunt him. And what we're going to see is tonight in chapter 24, when David gets a chance to end this threat to his life by killing Saul, We will learn that it's better to have a spiritual heart than a sorry heart. So chapter 24, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto you. So then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. But it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt Here we see this interesting opportunity that presents itself to David to kill Saul. It mentions that the reason Saul's in this position is that when he had returned from going after, chasing after the Philistines, it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And we knew that from last Sunday night that that's where David was at. Uh, But we have no details of this campaign that Saul is on, so we don't know how much time has gone by between chapter 23 and chapter 24. Saul returns home, though, at some point and gets intel on David's whereabouts, and so what we do learn is that Saul is still very determined to find and kill David, because in verse 2 it says, then, upon getting this intel, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And Getty is a steep mountainous region just west of the Dead Sea. I have to confess that it is probably one of my favorite spots in all of Israel, It's just absolutely. I mean, it's 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 kind of desert oasis beautiful. So if you're not big into like desert oasis beautiful, then you might not like it. Um, But but it it is just very peaceful. It's 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 in the just in the middle of nowhere. There's just, just just miles and miles of oasis. It's gorgeous to me. But it's very—it's a steep, mountainous region. It's got—it's full of caverns where David and his men could hide. Um, it's limestone hills and deep gorges, make for precipitous climbing, though. It's not safe, and so Saul brings a smaller strike force rather than the whole army this time. And it mentions that these three thousand chosen men—obviously they're men who are a fit to get up there. And it says that he went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. The wild goat here is a wild mountain goat. If you ever you want to look at something trippy, Google goat walking on the side of a dam, and you'll, you will be blown away. These, they're they're the ibex, these mountain goats, they can literally walk on surfaces that are, are, are like this. They're, they're flat. As long as it's, I mean, as long as it's got a couple, you know, some little bit of rock outcroppings here and there, they just, they have, they're such fleet-footed in how they, they handle things, they can walk on these surfaces. So this place was, actually today it's called the Goat Oasis uh, because of its many springs and date palm trees and the fact that the goats are the ones that have the easiest time walking around there. It's not an easy climb, but it's beautiful, and it was the perfect place for David to hide out and have a fresh water source. However, it would also be the perfect place for David to lay an ambush for Saul. So verse 3 tells us that Saul came to the sheepcoats by the way. I can guarantee you David's not normally hanging out right by the roadside. But there's this sheepcoat. A sheepcoat is a wall or a fence that's used to contain sheep. Go figure. Why would they build a, a wall or a fence for sheep up in the mountains though? Well, shepherds frequently took their sheep on long treks into the wild. And These small stone walls or wooden fences were often constructed around the entrance to caves for the purpose of keeping the sheep safe if they had to stay out overnight or if they had to seek shelter during storms. And so this made for an ideal camping spot for Saul and his men. However, David is in this this cave. It says, and Saul went in to cover his feet, and, and then it lets us know David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. Now, to cover your feet is a very polite way back then of saying that you were having a, a bowel movement. Um, you know, uh, you, you take your clothes off and they cover your feet. And so that's why, where this phrase comes from. And somehow, again, without realizing it, Saul and his men choose to camp right where David and his men are hiding out. And I do not believe in coincidences like this. God certainly set this up. Now, prior to this, the tension level for David and his men must have been at an all-time high. They are severely outnumbered. It is 3,000 to 600. Their lives are literally hanging in the balance, and the odds are stacked against them. But then the one hunting them walks right into their hands, and not only right into their hands, but he's in the most vulnerable position that a person can possibly be, maybe besides sleeping if you've ever had a fear of snakes or frogs or other horrifying events occurring to you while you're in the restroom, I guarantee you Saul's situation here beats all of those. I have never gone to the restroom worried that people were there waiting to kill me. Maybe a frog or a snake, but not people. And so you have an entire group of frightened, tense, and angry men, and most of them have no qualms with killing Saul while he's relieving himself. And so in verse four, it says, The men of David said unto him, Behold the day. Literally, it means, Look, today is the day look, today is the day which the Lord said unto you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto you. Now, this is a little bit misleading because we get the idea that the men are saying to him, hey, God spoke to you and he told you that there was going to come a day when Saul would be, he would deliver Saul into your hand and then you could do whatever you wanted with him. That is not what the men are saying here. The way the sentence is constructed is not that the Lord had made a promise like this to David because God never made such a promise like that to David. What they're saying is, look, Today is the day, David. You know, this is a miracle. The Lord is speaking clearly through these circumstances. It's not that God spoke through a prophet or something. They're saying, no, God is speaking through these circumstances right now. You can't ignore that this is an opportunity from the Lord, David. You gotta take advantage of it. And you know, if you just try to logic it out, it's hard to argue with that kind of logic. I mean, what are the odds that he's gonna just walk in there and he's relieving himself? Would there ever be a better opportunity for David to get his life back? Would there ever be a better opportunity for David to fulfill the promise that God did make to him, that he would be king? Well, it says, then David arose. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what David was thinking that made him decide to move on Saul, but I do not believe that David went in there to cut off a piece of Saul's robe. I don't think there's any reason that he would be convicted afterwards if he just went in there to cut off a piece of Saul's robe. I can't prove it, but I do think his men's logic convinced him to kill Saul. But David doesn't kill Saul when he gets there. When he has the opportunity to get the drop on Saul, instead of attacking him, David quietly slices off the hem of Saul's robe, and then he returns to his men. But before he gets to his men, conviction just hits him hard for what he's done. Look at verse 5. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And then when he gets back to his men, he says to them, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul, But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David's heart smote him. It means his conscience told him that what he had done was wrong. Now, David's going to actually talk to Saul and say he cut off the hem of his robe, and he is not going to apologize for it. So the wrong is not cutting off the the robe. It is what caused him to go in there in the first place. Whatever it was that David was thinking about doing before he cut off the robe, that is where his heart has been smitten. Despite all the wrong things that Saul had done to David, and even though David hadn't always made the best decisions in response to that, David had never done harm to Saul or intended harm to Saul prior to this. He could always maintain innocence of any desire to harm Saul. And that is now no longer true. You might be saying, but Will, he spared Saul. I mean, no one would have done that. I mean, we we should be applauding David for this. He's a good man. If that's the case, then why is he convicted? You know, it's interesting. We read in Romans chapter 3. You can read it on your own. But it's not a pretty picture of of us being good people because we're not. You know, it starts off by saying there is none good, no, not one, and then it just starts to deteriorate. <laughs> it says, what do, you, what do you mean we're not good? Let me tell you. You know, your mouths are open tombs. Your, your feet are swift to shed blood. I mean, it goes through this list of list of list of things of just how we are at our core. We can't look at this situation and go, well, David's a good man. I mean, you know, he, he should have killed Saul. Anybody else would have killed Saul. While well, what David did might seem reasonable to us, while well, it might even seem merciful or admirable to us, it wasn't God fearing. It didn't take what God said on the situation into account. You know, Jesus, of course, many centuries later in Matthew chapter five, when he taught him the Sermon on the Mount, and he's giving us God's standard, he said, You have heard that it was this is Matthew five twenty one. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, verse 22 of Matthew 5, whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Now you might be saying, Pastor Will, you left a part out. It says, whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. That phrase without cause is not in the original. It is in hardly any manuscripts out there it's much more likely that when you've got a massive thousands majority, thousands upon thousands of majority manuscripts that do not have that, it's much more likely that the four or five copies that do have it was a couple people going, that doesn't seem fair. I don't think that's what Jesus meant, and adding it in. When you hear all the old church fathers, the people who lived in the first three centuries of the church, none of them quote it with the phrase without cause. In fact, a couple of them mentioned that some other people have added the phrase without a cause because they didn't like what Jesus said. Matthew 5, 48 makes it clear what God's standard is that when he says, be therefore perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. That's God's standard to be a good person, which none of us, you know, none of us make. See, David knows that he has now fallen short of what God says about hating your enemy. You know, David will have many failures in his life. Some of them he'll recognize and some of them he won't. But for the most part, David had a a heart that was very sensitive to God's standards. He was deeply sensitive to God's standards in his word. And he didn't make excuses when he fell short, even if many of us would give him a pass. There are many times David was one of the only people doing what God said, even when it seemed ludicrous to do so, like in this situation. I think it's so important to not give yourself a pass when the Lord is convicting you. Don't condemn yourself, but do respond to the Lord when you fall short. You know, it's interesting, we have the tendency to do the exact opposite like of that. We tend to give ourselves a pass, and then with everybody else, it's like judgment and damnation right here. You know, you crossed a line, that the, the rule book is, says it very clear, there's a line, and you took an inch over it, you are done for. We tend to not be gracious with others, and we tend to be really, really gracious with ourselves. The scripture seems to indicate something very opposite of that, where it says that we're to be really serious about our own sin and very gracious with other people's. Well, when David returns to his men, he's going to have some explaining to do because Saul's still alive and because he's not the only one who has a grievance against Saul. Look at verse 6. David said unto his men, the Lord forbid that I should do the thing unto my master. So he's got to explain why he's back. and he's, The only thing he's got to show is not a head or anything else. It's a, it's a, it's a piece of cloth. David explains, the Lord forbid this is a, a, well, let me read the whole phrase. The Lord forbid that I should do this un- thing unto my master. This is a very complicated Hebrew phrase to translate. The closest I could come is to say that David is saying, never let me say that out of the Lord I should do this thing. In other words, never let me say. In other words, I, I should have not listened to you guys, and I never will listen to that, that theology again, the idea that it would be God's plan, that it would come out from him, that I would harm Saul. It is both a confession and a commitment. He says, you guys suggested to me that God was speaking to me through this circumstance, and it was wrong for me to believe those words, and never again will you hear me echo those words. Never again will I step forward to harm my king, my master, the Lord's anointed, Now you might be saying, how can Saul still see, I mean, David still sees Saul as his king after all he's done to David. I mean, Saul wasn't looking out for David's best interest. He was a horrible king to David. And how could he still call him the Lord's anointed? David, he's I didn't pick Saul to be king. I'd rather have somebody else, someone else who would take care of me. Someone else who'd be a good king to me. Well, (laughs) that truth swings both ways. Because David didn't pick Saul to be king. God did. And God anointed him to be in this role even if Saul wasn't doing what God wanted him to do. Seeing he is the anointed of the Lord, I will not stretch forth my hand against him because he is the anointed of the Lord. In other words, it wasn't David's job to fix the problem because it wasn't David's problem. See, how can it not be David's problem? He's being chased down. It's not David's problem. It's the Lord's problem. You know, <clears throat> I was taught by uh, one of my Bible college teachers. You know, when you're going through stuff, like for use example, like when the car breaks down, go to the Lord and say, "Lord, um, your car isn't working. The car you gave me that I need to get to my job so I can take care of my family, it's not working." So will you please either come up with an alternate plan for me to take care of my family or will you please provide for the car to be repaired? And that's a whole different way of approaching things than banging at the car because you've tried to fix it seven times and nothing's working, you know, and cursing at the car and whatever it might be. That's a whole different way to approach it. I, I now have children that deal with a lawnmower because they're old enough. But me and lawnmowers have a long, dark history together. Some of you have probably helped me work on my lawnmowers over the years and can testify to my long, dark history with lawnmowers. And man, it was everything within me in the times when they would be breaking down again and I'd be pulling the thing apart and trying to put it back together again and I'd have to do it with gritted teeth. Lord, your lawnmower's not working and your grass is long. (laughs) and your neighbor that you gave me is unhappy keeps mentioning how long my grass is your grass is Lord (laughs) but man that is a different way to live because then you go to sleep at night because it's not my problem so what are you going to do the next day I don't know it's the Lord's deal not mine my job is to pray, give us this day our daily bread, right? Lord, you're the provider. You're the one who who deals with these things. Now, this is not exactly what they had hoped or expected to hear David say. And could you imagine the tension that was in the cave during this conversation? Because, you know, they're thinking, okay, well, this was supposed to be an ambush and if we kind of take out Saul, then maybe maybe like this all goes away. Like we can just go back to life. Well, now the ambush has turned into a trap because we're stuck in here and he's out there and the army's out there and we, we got nowhere to go. That these men are restrained by David is evidence of the respect they had for him and his character. It says, David stayed his servants with these words. These words that he spoke stayed them. The word stayed means to speak content, which points out the wrong ideas or wrong behavior and shows the proper way to go instead. It usually is translated to rebuke or admonish. It's not that David just kept them back. He corrected them. He admonished them. He said, guys, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong, and here's what we need to do. He did not allow them to rise up against Saul. There were other men who were willing and ready to kill Saul that would say, David, I'll go in there and do it. But David's love for truth held them back. I want that to be a testimony in my life. Well, it says, but Saul rose up as this is all going on. He rose up out of the cave and he went on his way, just as if nothing happened, none the wiser. I wonder how many times in my 46 years God has spared my life and I had no clue. It is very easy to criticize the Lord when something goes wrong due to our limited information of what we don't know that he's done that we would be so grateful for. That's why the scripture urges us to humble ourselves. It's why humility is required to receive grace. We have to acknowledge that we are not God, that we don't know everything. There's so much we don't know and have not seen. Well, David and his men are still in a very precarious situation, and David decides to make it worse. (laughs) He decides to trust the Lord even more with his next decision. Look at verse 8. So then David also arose afterward, and he went out of the cave, and he cried out after Saul, saying, My Lord and King... And when Saul looked behind him, Saul turned around. David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. Talk about like a complete turn of a situation. I mean, Saul is completely exposed. He's completely vulnerable. He has no clue what's going on. And now David has just done the same exact thing and turned the tables to where Saul has him where David had Saul just a few minutes earlier. The word there afterward means very little delay. There's not going to be much space between Saul and David once David gets outside. And he says to him, I mean, he announces his presence, my Lord and the king. My Lord, the king. And when Saul turned around, David puts himself in a completely vulnerable position. The word there for Lord is the word Adonai. It's certainly a word that's normally used for God when we speak of his ownership, his being sovereign. But it is also a title of respect given to a superior when it's used for another human being. He says, treats him with respect. And he calls him his king, the king. You know, it's interesting. We might make the mistake that David had a right to come to Saul as an equal because they'd both been anointed by God to be king, right? I mean, if anybody had the logical reason to actually speak to Saul like an equal, it would be David. And in a sense, David could even say, well, you've been rejected by the Lord, and I'm the future. But David makes it clear that he still holds Saul as his king, and he has no intention of overthrowing him. He makes it clear that he's submitted to Saul's leadership despite Saul's mistreatment of him he stooped the word there means to bow down or kneel down we know it's bow down because it says with his face to the earth and he bowed himself there is no more vulnerable position david could be in from a physical standpoint to defend himself if saul takes a few steps david is a dead man there's no way to to block a blow or, or whatever he is in every way subject to his king at this moment. You know, sometimes people say, "Why? Why do people raise hands during worship?" And, and there's lots of different reasons, but one of the reasons is because it's it's a vulnerable position. You're you're saying, "Lord, I trust you. I, I am making myself vulnerable. I trust you completely. I am I'm you know, you know like when you do the, the you do the the, the fall the, the, you know where you fall back and your your coworkers are supposed to catch you. You know, I, I have never gone to one of those where the person actually like falls. It's always kind of like you know you know, because they don't trust him, you know. That's why you're there. David is in every way subject to his king at this moment. This type of humility and faith would be considered suicidal by many in the church today, at least by the theology I'm hearing taught. However, David is living out what Jesus would someday do and what Jesus commanded us through his servant Peter to emulate. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we have one of the most unpopular sections of Scripture in our culture right now. Honestly, I think if, if some had their way, I think they would be like Martin Luther who ripped out James out of the Bible, and we'd like to get rid of this one doesn't fit with our modern-day theology. 1 Peter two eighteen Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, all respect, reverence, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the King James' froward. It means harsh. For doing so, this is thankworthy, commendable, if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. If you're doing it because of your conscience towards God, you're trying to honor the Lord, that is a commendable thing. For what glory is it if when you be beaten for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, that is commendable before God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth who, when he was reviled, did not revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. (laughs) Unpopular theology. It has been recently argued by men, many men who, in the past, I would have said they're good Bible teachers, but we're not subjects. We're free men here. This doesn't apply to us. Let me ask you a question about Jesus then. Was he a subject? Or was he a free man? Well, he's under Rome. He's a subject. Let's hear it from Jesus' own lips. Matthew 17. Matthew 17. It's one of my favorite stories. I'm not someone who... Goes fishing frequently. Uh, but I know that those who do absolutely love it. Peter's a fisherman. Peter gets himself into a bit of an awkward situation here. In verse 24 of Matthew 17, it says And when they were come to Capernaum, those that received the tribute money came to Peter and said to him, Does your master pay the, the tribute? And this is not taxes from the Roman government, this is a, a temple tax. Uh, that the religious leaders enforced, uh, and so they ask him, "Hey, does your master pay the the temple tribute?" And uh, he said, "Well, yes." You know, I mean, that's all we get from Peter. But the thought, of course, well, of course he does. You know, of course, of course my master pays the temple tribute. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus, <laughs> the Bible says, anticipated him. In other words, Peter's coming in. And he's got a question. He's like, yeah, we pay the temple tax, right? But, but Jesus anticipates him. He anticipates the question and he, he beats Peter to the punch. And he says, What do you think, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or strangers? Foreigners? Their own people or foreigners? And Peter said to him, Well, foreigners, strangers, of course. And so Jesus said unto him, Well, then. Then are the sons free, aren't they? Jesus is telling Peter, he's going, Peter, we don't, we don't need to do this because we are free. But then look at what he says. He says, I'm a free man. Notwithstanding, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. In other words, there's a greater purpose here. There's more that God's trying to accomplish. God has given us instructions so we don't stumble others when it concerns the gospel. He has called us to live a certain way so we don't stumble others concerning the gospel. Notwithstanding, unless we should offend them, go there out to the sea and cast a hook and take up the fish that first comes up. And when you've opened his mouth, you shall find a piece of money. Take that and give them for me and for you. Jesus considered himself a free man because his father owned everything. And yet he subjected himself to the authorities because his father commanded him to and for the gospel's sake. David did likewise here. We're going to see as he interacts with Saul here, his heart as he's trying to win Saul over. And so he does this certainly not for his own sake because every step he takes here puts himself in further danger. But he's trying to reach Saul. Well, what happens? Well, it wasn't David's time to go and the Lord saw fit to deliver him. Saul does not kill him. In fact, Saul allows David to address him. And so in verse 9, David said to Saul back here in 1 Samuel 24, Wherefore do you hear these men's words, saying, Behold, David seeks your hurt? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how that the Lord has delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and some bade me kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed." Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the skirt of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of your robe and did not kill you. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my soul to take it. David here, he, he, he asks Saul, he starts off by asking Saul why he's listening to slander he, he, where it says wherefore, it's, it's just why. Why, Saul? Why are you out here after me? That, that question permeates the entire conversation that, that David has with Saul here. It is a question that David cannot fathom, fathom a good answer to. He, why are you hunting me? He doesn't get it. In fact, he suggests that Saul's suspicions about David didn't arise from Saul because no reasonable person would think that way about David that it arose from others. Why are you listening to men who are telling you, wake up, Saul? It's obvious David's after the throne. Why are you listening to them? Now, we know the truth. No one was telling Saul this. The murderous behavior did arise from Saul's own heart, from his own jealousy and guilt. David is a far more kind and gracious man than me. I need to be more like David is here, more like Jesus, Assuming the best and not the worst. Because that's what love does. Believes the best. When David asks this question and Saul doesn't answer, David offers two proofs of his innocence in verse uh, 10 and 11. He says, behold, in other words, Saul, pay attention to something real instead of people's speculations. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord delivered me into your hand today into, uh, I'm sorry, how that the Lord had delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And some bade me kill you, but my eyes spared you. The phrase here, spared, it means to show mercy, despair from great punishment. He says, I spared you, Saul. I did not give you what you deserve. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. The first proof of my innocence, Saul, is that you were vulnerable. I could have killed you easily. You didn't even know I was behind you until I spoke. But I didn't kill you because I refused to do harm to my king. You're still my king, Saul. And then his second proof of his innocence is in verse 11. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see, the skirt of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of your robe and killed you not, and know and thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand. If you leave with nothing else today, Saul, recognize right here that I've done nothing wrong. The phrase there for wrong, it means evil. The word there for transgression, it means wrong intentions. He says, if you leave with nothing else, just say, look at this thing in my hand. Look at this thing as proof and evidence that I intend I've done nothing evil toward you and I intend nothing evil toward you. The only one here that's in the wrong is you. I have not sinned against you yet you hunt my soul to take it. David is again so very gracious to Saul by seeking to reason with a man who's not shown himself to be in any way reasonable. You know, the old proverb states that two wrongs don't make a right. I was taught that as one of the youngest, you know, youngest points in my life. You know, when you get in a scrap with your friend, you know. oh you did this. Mom would always tell me, two wrongs don't make a right. Man, you don't even hear that anymore. You don't even hear it anymore. I hear so many Christians today excuse wrong behavior because of the wrong things done to them. They'll say things like, well, how do you expect me or how do you expect this other person to respond when when someone's being rude to them or someone's being unkind to them or someone's wronging them? I expect you to respond like someone who has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. I expect you to respond like someone who's seeking to emulate Jesus. What do you mean, what do I expect you to do? Same thing that Jesus expects of me. And so while David is, is gracious, he doesn't excuse Saul's wrongdoing. See, it's, it's like we can't, we can't handle the truth. It's like, you can't handle the truth. Sorry, I had to do that. <laughs> I've never even seen that movie. I just know that line. We can't, it's like we can't handle the truth. So we, we, we've got this like, okay, well, well uh, uh, no, no, no. I don't want to be walked on, so you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fight back, you know. And, and then we're like, no, you got to love people. I'm like, oh, okay, so you know, just, just don't ever even point out wrong. And it's like, what Wait a second how about we just come to the truth, you know, where we're gracious and we speak, you know, truth about sin, where we're, where we're kind and we, and we don't repay evil for evil, but we point out evil, you know. It's like we, can't, we struggle so much, you know, it's like you either got to be on the, on the this end or on this end and you can't just stay in the truth. I know, I know it's a struggle for me, David doesn't hide the truth from Saul. He says, you're out here hunting me. I haven't done anything wrong to you. I don't intend anything wrong to you. This proves it. But you're the one out here hunting me. David, like Jesus, in this instance, is full of grace and truth, the way we're supposed to be. Again, Saul remains quiet. And when Saul still doesn't respond, David finally appeals to the Lord for justice. Verse 12, the Lord judge between me and you and the Lord avenge me of you, but my hand shall not be upon you. As says the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be upon you. The word there for judge in verse 12, the Lord judge between me and you, it means to adjudicate a matter between two parties. In other words, there's conflict here. It's all clearly. I'm pouring my heart out to you, and you're saying nothing. There's clearly a conflict here. So I'm appealing to the Lord to be the one to look at both of us and the points that we're making, the arguments that, 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 that we have against each other. I'm going to appeal to him to adjudicate the matter. And I'm going to appeal to him to avenge me of you. Uh, the word there, avenge, means to bring justice for the innocent by exacting punishment on the guilty. If you won't do the right thing, Saul, then I take my appeal to the Lord to deal with you because I'm not going to take justice into my own hands. And why won't David do that? Because doing so would make him just like Saul. If you've never read a book, you want, you want to read a good book, read a book called Three Kings. It covers Saul, David, and Absalom. It is awesome. Because when it gets to a certain point with David, with Absalom, it shows how David had every opportunity to be just like Saul with Absalom, but he was not. And Absalom had been everything Saul thought David was. yet David still didn't treat Absalom like Saul treated David. He says, as the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Now, David did not get this saying from Scripture. There's nowhere in Scripture that that line occurs. We don't know who originally spoke this ancient proverb, but the truth of the proverb is spoken in Scripture. In Matthew 7, verses 16 through 18, it says, it talks about how out of the abundance of the heart, you know, what, what's, what's out of the heart is what comes out of a man. Uh, seven, oh no, I'm, I'm actually completely misquoting. 7.16, completely different topic. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns of figs or, or figs of thistles? The obvious answer is no. If you're gonna go to thorns, you're not gonna expect to get grapes. If you're gonna go to thistles, you're not gonna expect to get figs. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. The idea here is David knows if he takes action that the Lord says not to do, then he's no different than Saul. Even if he would, others might say, well, you have good reason to do what you're doing. Basically, what David's saying is only a wicked man would want to avenge himself. And you know what? My actions prove that I am not a wicked man. I don't think that way toward you, Saul. And I know God knows that, and I'm gonna trust him to bring justice when it's necessary, which is the principle that Jesus taught us to live by. In Matthew 18, verse seven, Jesus says, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense come. We are not to be a stumbling block to someone else, and David says, I am not going to be your excuse to disobey God. I'm not going to be your excuse to stay in your sin. So you want to do wrong to me? I appeal to the Lord, but I am not, I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I don't know David. I look forward to meeting him someday, but there's a part of me that sees David pleading here, that he's It's almost like he's holding out this like any branch that that, any branch he can to Saul. Just take something, man. Come on. You have to know I'm right. Say something. But Saul is still silent. And so David tries one last line of reasoning to convince Saul in verses 14 and 15. He says, After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? And he says, I'll tell you. After a dead dog, after a flea. The Lord, therefore, be judge, and judge between me and you, and see and plead my cause, and deliver me out of your hand. He says, whom is the king of Israel? The phrase the king of Israel is emphatic in the Hebrew sentence. David is emphasizing with his words, I recognize you as the king of Israel. And he says, even if I wanted to kill you, Saul, even if everything you thought about me was true, look at me. Look at me. I live in a cave. What resources do I have to pull that off? I am hopelessly outnumbered. I am so ridiculously insignificant as a threat to you. Truth be told, the only reason Saul was even in any danger today is because he came out after David. David wasn't any danger to him prior to that. Therefore, he tells him, because of that, God has reason to favor me, Saul. I've done nothing wrong. I have no ill intent toward you. I'm the one who's being oppressed here. And so I am trusting that he will see and he will plead my cause and that he will deliver me out of your hand. The phrase plead and deliver are both legal terms in Hebrew. I believe he will be my defense attorney and he will be the judge that rules in my favor. He's on my side, Saul. I have full confidence that the Lord is both my defense attorney and my judge in this matter and that he will declare me innocent even if you won't. And at that point, David's done talking. And Saul finally responds. Look at verse 16. And it came to pass, when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. The gracious words of David actually softens Saul's heart. He says, is this my son, David? David was Saul's son-in-law. David had been a faithful captain. David had been a loyal citizen. In every way, David had been a good son to Saul. And as he remembers those relationships, Saul is confronted by the fact that in every way, equally, he's been a horrible father. He has been a horrible father-in-law. He's been a horrible commander, and he's been a horrible king. And Saul lifts up his voice, and he weeps. It speaks of tears beginning to well in the eyes and then mild convulsions of the diaphragm that usually result in soft groans. He, he's just beginning to quake and weep, the realization hitting him. Saul really had somehow convinced himself that he'd done nothing wrong, that he'd been the one who was wrong. And David's soft, tender words, gracious but truthful words, shattered it and the weight of Saul's failure crashed in on him. And Saul finally makes a very honest confession to David. He says to David, verse 17, You are more righteous than I. You're right, David, for you have rewarded me good, where I have rewarded you evil. You have treated me like I'm the best king in the world, and I've treated you like you're the worst citizen in the world. And yet David even went above above that. Verse 18, and you have showed this day how that you have dealt well with me. For as much as when the Lord has deli- had delivered me into your hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore, the Lord rewards you good for the, that which you have done unto me this day. You've exposed yourself to danger, to my evil repayment, in order to let me know your heart toward me. This is the most honest we have ever seen Saul with his sin. Even in his conversations with Samuel, Saul never owned up to this much. And yet, sadly, Saul is no closer to repentance. He says, wherefore? You know what the next verse should be? Verse, uh, the end of verse 19 where it says, wherefore the Lord reward you good for that which you have done unto me this day? This is where if you're Saul, you hit the eraser, you do the rewind button, you say, can we do that again? And you say, wherefore, will you please forgive me? I'm done hunting you. I'm sorry. I'm gonna try to be a better king, better dad, better commander. That's not what Saul does. Saul, why don't you clear David's name Why don't you drop your petty jealousy? Why don't you lay down this desire to hold on to a kingdom that God took from you? Why don't you finish your days walking with the Lord even though it might not be as the king of Israel? You see, Saul refuses to repent. He invokes a blessing from God but refuses to give one himself. He knows what's happened is wrong and he's genuinely sorry that it happened. But sorry is not the same as repentant. You can read 2 Corinthians 7 verses 8 through 11 later on because we're almost out of time. But Paul says, you know, I wrote to you, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I think, what did I say, 7? Second Corinthians 7, yeah, 8 through 11. He wrote a letter and he said, listen, I wrote 1 Corinthians to you and I made you guys sorry because I said a lot of heavy things. But I'm so glad not that it just made you Sorry that it was a sorrow that led to repentance, not a sorrow of the world that's just sorry that you messed up or sorry that you feel this way or sorry that things aren't working out like you'd hoped or, ooh, sorry, I don't like what you pointed out in my life or, ooh, I feel bad for what I've done. All of those things can qualify for sorry, but none of those things are repentance. And if you read 2 Corinthians 7 verses 8 through 11, Paul lays out what sorrow that leads to repentance looks like. And so I would ask you tonight, do you have a sorry heart or a repentant heart? Do you have a selfish heart, a stubborn heart, or a spiritual heart? Because the difference is everything. Well, verse 20, Saul, incredibly enough, Seeks even more grace from David instead of repenting. Look at what he says in verse twenty. And now behold, I know well that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now unto me by the Lord that you will not cut off my seed after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul, and then Saul went home. But David and his men got him them up into the, the hold means the mountain caverns again. There's no fortress there in Engedi. The numerous caverns there are the fortress, the fortress of a bunch of fleas. Instead of repenting or doing good to David, he seeks even more grace from David by asking for a promise. When you win this battle that I'm not willing to give up, I promise you won't destroy the rest of my family. And that's all David was going to get. And David being the good man that he is, the gracious man, the man who's trying to follow after the Lord, the man with a spiritual heart and a repentant heart says, I promise. And then Saul goes home. That's the nicest thing that Saul could work himself up to do for David sparing his life and giving a promise like this. I'll go home. I'll give you a break for a few months. There's a passage in Hebrews, and I'm going to leave you with this. You can read this also. It's our scripture reading, Hebrews 12. And it can be confusing because it mentions Esau, who was a profane person, he didn't care about spiritual things. And it mentions that when he found out he'd lost the inheritance, it says that no place of repentance was found in his heart. And then it goes right after and says, though he sought it with tears. And what a lot of people misunderstand is saying, Well, Esau, he was seeking a place of repentance with even tears in his heart, but you know, God didn't let him find it. And they say, well, that sounds awful. And it does sound awful because it's not biblical. He didn't seek repentance with tears. You can't call someone a profane person and then say they sought repentance. He's a profane person because he, all he cared about was losing the birthright. He sought the birthright with tears. Read the text with him and Isaac. He's not seeking repentance. He's crying to his father because, do you have any blessing for me? He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about repentance. He didn't care about spiritual matters a sorry heart, tears, confessions of failure. They do not guarantee a spiritual heart. They just reveal a heart like Esau and Saul's, one that has finally recognized the horrible facts in front of them, but one that doesn't want to change their part in those horrible facts. And that is not our lot as Christians. We have received amazing grace from the Lord. Amen? Amazing grace from the Lord. So let's live like those who have experienced God's grace. Let's be different than the world. Let's care about what God thinks and let's obey the Lord, trusting him in all things. Let's all stand. Oh Lord, you never said that The things that you call us to do make sense to the natural mind. Though there are so many things that you call us to do that run 100% counter to our natural instinct. But if I do that, I'm exposed. If I do that, I'm in danger. If I do that, it's not going to work out. But Lord, you did say, Come unto me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'll carry the load. And so, Lord, we want to be those who trust you, who come because of the amazing love you've shown us, because of the the amazing relationship you brought us into with yourself. We want to be obedient. We want to follow you even when it runs counter to everything in our survival instinct. Everything in our flesh is crying, no, it won't work. You're gonna suffer if you do that. We want to be those, Lord, who, like you, deny ourselves, take up our cross and lay down our lives. Lord, that not only might we follow you, but that we might bring others to follow you as well. Lord, we want our lights to shine, so we need you. Fill us with your spirit in these areas tonight that maybe you've been convicting us of doing things our way instead of walking in the scripture. Maybe being to one extreme or the other of the, of the culture's viewpoint, but not in truth. Or being carnal, not spiritual. Being sorry, not repentant. We love you. Thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.